Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. Like the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. I've been teaching at San Francisco State for some 26 years now in the Department of Management. So my day job, you could say, is a professor of management. But I see myself more as a social critic, and I'm interested in lots of things besides management. In fact, I'm working on an essay right now, another one for current affairs that is <laughs> criticizing the whole discipline of management as well as business schools. Brilliant. Nice. <laughs> Man, I'm yeah. look forward to that. <laughs> I think maybe diving in with a sort of first question. I thought the article was brilliant and it connected a whole bunch of dots for me, particularly around sort of positive psychology stuff, but we can get into, we can get into that. But maybe as a first question, how did you first become interested in examining the life coaching industry and its impact on individuals seeking personal development? Like where did that sort of interest begin? Yeah. It's an interesting story, actually. I got a call from the Daily Mail, the editor at the Daily Mail, a while back, asking me to pen a story about Prince Harry and his involvement with a company here in San Francisco. But that that project never really manifested. But it did draw my attention. Then I started to muck around a bit, and the more that I read and especially everyone knows who Tony Robbins is. But the more I got into it, the more angry I got. And I've always had a problem with positive psychology going way back, particularly the work of Martin Seligman, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But more more recently, people like Jay Shetty, who's extremely popular. He's the latest guru, life coach guru. He even has his own coaching school now, the Jay Shetty Certification Life Coaching School. But the more I studied this, the more I realized that it was very similar to what I was seeing with McMindfulness. It was very similar in terms of this highly individualistic kind of neoliberal reductionism upon the individual that all of the uh, responsibility for wellness and happiness. It was very similar in terms of what I saw with mindfulness. There was just so much material out there. It was almost like this article almost wrote itself. It was so prominent in terms of just the outrageous sort of claims being made by many life coaches and just the crass sort of commercialization of it too. It's funny as well that the process began with anger, right? Because that would yeah. get labeled like a negative emotion. Yeah, I would not qualify. I would probably need some positive psychologist to get me back in line. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, you had that. I'm just, Man, I'm just so enthusiastic to jump on some of the positive psychology stuff. I'm just going to hold back 
It's hard not to, I understand. <laughs> but in, in terms of this sort of life coaching industry and uh, pseudo solutions that they offer, are there specific examples just maybe that you could elaborate on? Because they, in theory, they offer these solutions for deep personal problems, but then perhaps they can't deliver on some of this stuff because, yeah, maybe I'm just garbling my questions here, but there's a separate sort of issue, I guess, with credentialism, right? Because there's this idea yeah. of that people can think that a life coach is a sort of therapist, right? But they don't necessarily have qualifications of one. And there's right. all kinds of implications involved in that. It is, there's also problems with credentialism, right? Like on one hand, you've got that fail safe, like someone's actually been through the process and that there are, they are liable <laughs> if they're doing terrible things for their clients. But on the other hand, credentialism at its worst is just, that can be smoke and mirrors as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of issues that you're bringing up and to unpeel the onion a bit is that that's why I differentiate it uh, in the beginning of this article that first we have the glitzy social media stars, influencers. Yeah. Now, obviously, Tony Robbins was on the scene before the internet and all that in the days of TV infomercials. And, but so we have the, we have this top layer of social media influencers that are just spewing out vacuous platitudes and but making tons of money off it but as you're pointing out then there's the actual life coaching industry which is completely unregulated there is a organization called the international coaching federation which is not overseen by any kind of government bodies like psychiatrists or medical doctors or lawyers or psychotherapists it's self-regulated and even when i looked into the International Coaching Federation, to get a certification from them, it's pretty easy. And basically what you do is you take a course from some other life coach that has set themselves up as with training courses and, because they've been approved by ICF. So as long as you kind of log in a certain amount of hours, I think it's 60 hours, you can receive an associate coach certification or 125 hours will buy you a professional certification. And I looked at people like, for an example, is this woman who received her ICF coach certification, professional coach certification. And I went to her website. <laughs> She's offering a three-day life coaching course that includes vision boards, yoga, astrology, and ecstatic dance sessions for three days for $1,000. It's pretty fluffy. And so that is problematic that it tries to establish itself as having this kind of professionalism, but even people within the industry started to come forth. I found various blogs where people who were deep into the life coaching started to even criticize insiders were criticizing this whole industry. And one of the, one of the approaches, there's basically two bipolar approaches that I found one is the active listening approach, which was stolen from Carl Rogers and his person-centered therapy, where the coach just, just asks questions and reflects back and puts it all onto the client to come up with their own solutions. That's one end of the spectrum. But the other end is pretty much anything goes. And this is where we really see the abuses really egregious. There was a 
Canadian Broadcasting Company special investigation. You can find it on YouTube. And it was, they just went, I think it was in Toronto. They just, they just found these life coaches and it was undercover on investigation. And it was just blew my mind what these coaches were promising, saying they could help them cure their depression or alcoholism or drug addiction. And so those are two ends of the spectrum there. And yeah, but you make a good point that even with psychotherapists or the credentialed mental health counselors that are credentialed, it's, as I said at the end of the article, there's a lot of hurdles. It's a lot of obstacles to a lot of people don't have health insurance, but even the ones that do, it's sometimes it's really hard to get an appointment and there's a stigma. And also yeah. those people who are covered by insurance get paid a third of what people get who are not on That's right. list. And therefore you get people who are new, who need clients or who don't have clients because they're no good. So you don't yeah. have the top of the line, even with insurance. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I have seen that. I know what you're, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so then you have life coaches that have invested in marketing and social media yeah. marketing. They've got great slick websites, easy to onboard and easy to access. I just saw an article, oh, I think about two or three weeks ago. I don't know if you've seen this. It was in the UK that the GPs, general practitioners, were actually urged to refer patients to life coaches that instead of GPs signing off, giving sick notes to people, no, they were going to encourage life coaches to get these people back to work. I was wondering whether the life coaching scam is as popular in countries without a countries who are not failed empires like the UK or failing empires like the US without grotesque individualist cultures cultures where the group is much more likely to be the source for the change you need. That's a good question. I didn't really study that, but it certainly is the case that in the United States and the UK, this is where coaching is very popular, but it is taking off. I mentioned a, an online startup company called Better Up in the article based here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they're worldwide. They're global in their reach because it's all done virtually. Uh, which makes it, again, very easy to access. And that's a great question. That would be worth doing some further research. What it does reveal is an ideological bent that you can make change and that social change is irrelevant, that the social conditions that create misery and discouragement are basically non-existent. Yeah, circumstances don't matter. You can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. All you need to do is to be more optimistic and resilient and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I could see that somebody coming from obscene wealth, like Prince Harry, who's endearing, but also has no clue about class or other problems. He's aware of race because of his wife, but not of the kind of class constraints from which the majority suffer that he might fall for this. But it makes me wonder what would be a social antidote to that scam, which would be the sense of political, social, and economic analysis. Yeah, that's the challenge, isn't it? 
because where the big money is in companies like BetterUp that can really, they have an amazing cadre of social media marketers behind them. And it's very hard to get that message out when the playing field is not a very even playing field. You could make the point that the impulse maybe comes from a good place for the individual, right? That they believe that life could or should be better. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. A lot of the people that make significant amounts of money in this industry are also people who have a lot of social media presence, have a lot of marketing presence. And I think the platform of social media really drives this industry in a way that it doesn't drive other industries. And I think in that sense, I don't know about the extent of this industry in other countries, but I know that it's gaining a lot more prominence, for example, in Japan as well. And I think these are these seem from after I read the article, I was just like looking around the internet. And like you said, Tony Robbins predates the whole social media boom. But I think basically like coaching is a new word for like gurus. This industry is kind of segmented and differentiated. There are new age life manifestation coaches. Like, oh, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. New age. And then the case with Better Up, this startup company, is it wanted to distance itself from that sort of fringe. Right. And it, that's why it it took on the veneer of science, for example, yeah. and brought in Prince Harry, brought in Professor Martin Seglerman to give it the appearance of scientific legitimacy. But going back to the global reach, yeah, Better Up has... Oh, it's in 100 countries right now. I think you're right. Life coach sounds so innocuous as well. Right. It doesn't sound like you're being a cult follower. Yeah, you had this sort of phrase, the commercial empire of positive psychology, right? That if maybe there's a stigma still around seeing a mental health professional, I think presumably a lot of that has dropped a bit. That it seems to be, if you spend any time on yeah. TikTok or Twitter, like everyone's like, right. go see a therapist or Reddit. Like yeah, anyone, it's a badge any, of honor, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so if the therapy, It's almost become a class signifier. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. You can afford a therapist unless they have some kind of bonds. But it right. also strikes me as the word counselor, the word coach connotes a team. Even right. though it's, it's a sports metaphor. It's a sport. Sports win not because an individual changes something, but because the team works together. And yeah, so which you, is quite ironic, isn't it? It's ironic because it has the connotation of an antidote to loneliness, but then the sole responsibility for your social position is you. That's and brilliant. The, brilliant. Yeah. I've never thought of that part. If you're going to extend that team thing, that the thing that it is orientating around is this idea of compulsory optimism, which is a phrase you used in the article. Mm -hmm. This idea of there is the cult element to it, which is that you have to think the right way, right? You have to think positive. You have to replace your negative thoughts with positive ones. And I guess that's the thing that unites it, even if it is an isolated thing, and you're using this word coach, that's, I think, the implication is that you are going to join in with a group of people who think right and then all the good things happen to them. And so I guess the getting into this positive psychology stuff, I think that's, again, if you 
buy into this idea that people on a base level just believe life can be better and a life coach appears to be the way that your life could be better. You can see why it's so appealing besides the sort of marketing and the websites and the social media stuff that it makes those claims to be evidence-based. That's right. And so that all seems like super appealing. Oh, I just have to follow these things and then I can join Team Happy or something, right? Right. Very seductive. Yeah. The winning team, because in your life you are on the losing team. And one of the things that I wonder, because I've become so much more aware of it lately, that actually Britain is one of the top countries that actually has a shrinking gross domestic product. The United States has a lessening gross domestic project. China has the fastest growing wealth. And you wonder whether countries where there actually hope for people have less of this when there's a social vision of hope and you're part of a team, your country's team that's winning rather than losing as it is in the UK and the US. People have an unconscious awareness. These places are going down, but they want to be a winner. Look at Donald Trump's impact, right? Exactly. That you could, through your own personal effort, which he acts like he did, even though his father gave him $214 million. Yeah, the myth of the self-made man. That's right. Exactly. And I also wonder whether the self-made man is more likely to be a man than a woman because women are more in charge of the emotional and social aspects of life in our gender stereotype. Whether this has a sort of more macho appeal, even though some women are doing it. It's interesting that you said that it's about winning and I'm thinking of Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But that's absolutely right that positive psychology which is teamed up with life coaching. Right. It's a marriage made in heaven in a way, <laughs> because it is all about being future-oriented, being success-oriented. You're a loser, you're a whiner if you're wallowing in negativity. And this is what right. really bothered me about Sutherman is that he actually yeah. says in his many of his writings that he actually put down like psychoanalysis, Marxism. He's mm-hmm. He put down almost... Everything that came before him in the field of psychology, it was that stuff was just a drag that was just focusing on suffering and victims and trauma. You right. know, psychology. When he was the president, he became the president of the American Psychological Association. And in his inaugural speech, he made these comments. And what arrogance, yes. what condescension. And and so that really I am so happy to have written this article because I have wanted to get this off my chest for so long about Seglerman and his, his, I don't know, it's narcissism. I don't know what it is, but to go so far to say that depression is just episodic, right? Mm-hmm. That you just do some gratitude exercises or that right. it's going to lower your depression. Come on. But in <laughs> its way, it's also a corroboration of the denial that our field of psychology has. Everybody comes in with their unhappy family and think, hello, psychology, maybe social reproduction shouldn't be allocated to isolated nuclear families because just because you're knocked up doesn't mean you can take care of somebody. But they never come to the social realization 
the broader idea and they don't look to a solution of connecting with other people in some way that builds something positive. It's so individualistic that it's vulnerable to this kind of hoax. Well, but yeah. his, I think the wild thing in reading this was just the positive psychology in that guy Segel, Siegelman. I don't know how you say his name there. Um, yeah, Siegel, I would say Siegelman, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I could be too. Because the mass, I guess, duping of the, the US government and the military. Oh, the, was it CSF? A, Is that what it was called? Uh, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Training Initiative. The more you dig into what he was doing with the U.S. military and the Department of Defense and even some contested stories in the media about his association with the CIA military psychologists who were in and of themselves pretty suspect individuals who were part of the design of the enhanced interrogation program, otherwise known as torture. Yeah, he has a very checkered past, you could say. Mm. But it's that whole thing of soldiers just need to get with the program, as it were, and reconsider their trauma in more sort of positive language. That was the gist I was picking up on from reading this article. Yeah, maybe, that they can gain sense. meaning from their combat experience or something. And this military program didn't work. They discontinued no, it. These were independent external studies that were done. And it was a questionable evidence base. And then ethical concerns were raised by the Coalition for Ethical Psychologists. But yeah, it was basically training soldiers to disassociate and basically temporarily override and cloak their negative emotions in the battlefield and defer their pain and vulnerability. And deny it. Deny it, yes. And funny enough that BetterUp, the company we've been speaking about, was just awarded a sole source contract by the Department of Defense to provide virtual coaching services to the U.S. Air Force and the Space Force. It makes a lot of sense because, look, the U.S. is suffering. Fewer and fewer people are enlisting. And those that have fought in the last three wars that we lost, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, which we all lost against countries that don't even have an Air Force, more people kill themselves when they get home than die in battle. So there's obviously a problem with people not feeling good about what they did. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, it was fascinating. We uh, Last week's episode, there was a guy who wrote a book and he was talking about the benefits of pessimism when considering mm. a better version of society or utopia. The idea being that pessimism is a more accurate map of the terrain, whereas optimism is suits the powerful <laughs> and somehow magically things are just going to be better. and. He was just saying that part of the thing that unites us all as human beings and potentially any sentient being is suffering. And it doesn't mean like you're a Debbie Downer, as it were, but it's just an acknowledgement that we are all sort of sensitive creatures and that good things are built on top of a sort of universal background of suffering. And that what strikes me about the military thing or even just the general life coaching thing is it's trying to remove suffering from the picture. But that's like the roots of everything that's good, right? And you're never going to get to that good place if you completely deny, quote-unquote, negative emotions. Yeah, yeah. I use the term toxic positivity. It's a denial and demonization of anything that we interpret as being negative. And I really benefited 
a great deal from reading this book by a Ukrainian psychoanalyst, Oksana Shuko. And she wrote a book called Scientific Pollyannism from Inquisition to Positive Psychology. And And she really nailed it for me. She basically is saying that all of this focus on positive psychology and happiness it's a form of accommodation. It's an accommodationist orientation in terms of it's a way to get social compliance. It's a denial of circumstances. It's a denial of inequalities. But to do that, it's a really an injurious move because she, as being a psychoanalyst, is saying that you have to disassociate. You, you have to split yourself in a way. And she makes the analogy to Pollyanna. That's a classic American story. Yes, uh, exactly. There's a, a number of books. I think it was what the early 20th century, where mm-hmm. Pollyanna was glad about everything. It was pre- pre- presented as playing the glad games was the name of the the activity that they were doing. No matter what a person was feeling, whether it was suffering or how much negativity one would encounter, they always had to be playing this glad face, smiley face. Mm-hmm. And I call that toxic positivity is that it shames the individual for feeling anything but positive emotions, it victim blames. And then you have the compliance training, which is called life coaching. For me, in my wisdom about being a therapist, connection is the basis of mental health, feeling yes. connected to other people. But this denies compassion because if you're unhappy, you're just a loser. You're a loser. You're not someone who's in a continuous linked situation with the rest of humanity that deserves compassion and sometimes that deserves no, get over it, try to see, connect with other people and make something that's positive. But it denies compassion, which is a basis for connection. That's right. And this idea about connection reminds me a lot of Johan Hari's work, yeah. The Lost Connections, Hunter's story about the causes of depression, our lack of connections and community. We have, an, what, a loneliness epidemic now that's yeah. pervasive. Totally. But all of this sort of idea that oh, that you're the problem, that you're the victim and Seglerman says that these people have learned how to become helpless and that their problem is just that they tell themselves negative stories. It's all negative self-talk. Right. Nothing to do with their... Right. They're out of a job or they're working for a bad boss or that they have to hold three jobs. None of that. That whole positive psychology, though, that is the majority of therapy that people get. CBT has... A huge CBT is huge in the therapy world, and mm. that is basically positive psychology in a, a short, applicable form, or at least how it's deployed is very much positive psychology. So I would actually counter that this is the entire milieu of mental health and coaching, because that is one of the things about one aspect of what kind of also drives people in the industries, because I do know, technically speaking, this is a disclaimer, the drug treatment infrastructure is extremely outdated. It's extremely rigid. And basically working for the vast majority of the facilities means that you have to adhere to 
outdated and oftentimes harmful principles. That is huge. I can't tell you the number of whether it's I'm just it, the kind of abuses that are rife in that industry will make should make most people's toes curl. But the huge foundation of American drug treatment is 12 steps, whether you find it good or bad. There are, it is an old concept that at this point in or understanding of mental health does have some major issues in the ideology aspect of what they push. A huge tenet of 12 steps is that like you are completely helpless and your life has become unmanageable and you have to give it up to a higher power. Hmm. The same time, the 12 step is basically a communist model, even though they are. I don't think it's a communist model. I do because the salvation is going to AA and joining with other people to share your pain. You don't go in and say, I'm not an addict, and that's why I'm so happy, you fucking losers. No, you go in and- <laughs> But people do that, though. That's the thing, though, is that, that that's a very actually common thing that happens in these circles, is that it can be extremely shaming. Hang on. The other people in the circles are shaming other people, or they're shaming themselves. This is a volunteer organization. There are the groups and the group dynamics are as vast as the people that end up in them. So I've heard of very open and very warm and very supportive groups. But I've also heard of extremely groups where it's basically like I one of my clients was talking about like his first time in AA where he was just, oh, like, you know, I'm nervous about speaking in public. And the response was like, you're not fucking special. Wow. Right. One of the major issues of the dark side of a lot of these 12 steps can be that there are sponsors that are extremely predatory that commit a significant amount of like sexual and financial abuse of their teeth. And that must be the same thing that happens to some degree in their life coaching thing as well, because people are coming to them thinking that they are going to be given guidance because they are in some sort of vulnerable state. The number one issue in like even the therapist world is therapists and sexual kind of relations between therapists and clients, right? That's the biggest problem in any kind of these industries. Are there good therapists and terrible therapists? Absolutely. Are there good coaches and terrible coaches? Absolutely. Are there good 12-step groups and bad step 12-step groups. Absolutely. Good sponsors, bad sponsors. Absolutely. But ultimately, what capitalism does to any of the caretaking industries, it, it makes actually caring for people a lot more difficult than it, it should be. I also really was moved reading your article Because Seligman's example of the dog who is given random shocks and can't escape and then can't accept the possibilities of escape later on because that dog is conditioned to consider life as inescapably horrible. But the whole question, why should you have to get those shocks? Why should that dog be shocked? Why should people be born into poverty and have to overcome so much? Why should they have bad air and rotten food and live in dangerous neighborhoods? Why shop people? That is off the table here, which is amazing. 
reminds me of the shock doctrine. Exactly. Naomi Klein. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The framing of it, the framing of all this is always focused on this reductionistic, highly individualistic issue around the way he generalizes from the dog torture experiments to human yeah. beings is that he's saying it's their negative explanatory styles. That's why they learned helplessness. It's not because they were born into poverty. It's not because they're not getting health care. That no, those circumstances are only account for 10% of your happiness, according to their pseudoscience formulas that they tout out. They trot out is there these stupid happiness formulas and happiness yeah. pie charts and where it's only circumstances only count for ten percent. Forty percent of happiness is supposedly under our voluntary control. Fifty percent is genetic, which I think <laughs> it's ironic. And this is an interesting sidebar is something I couldn't get into in the article, but yeah, this is a long lineage going back to early American psychology, which was based on the eugenics movement. There are many racist statements that Seligman has made, which didn't make it into the article in, in terms of he, it's very interesting lineage that, that we see here. And I think that's a whole nother can of worms there. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm happy to go down it. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if I'm prepared to unpack that can of worms at the okay. moment, but it is an interesting connection that I was stunned to even discover. I had no idea. I had no idea of that history. I think there must be people either listening to this or just obviously have experience in the world, life coaching that actually worked for them. Whatever works, works. But I think the key criticism here is just that this, the sort of magic, the magic source that they're dishing out to people <laughs> in general is ignoring a kind of basic reality. Can this advice work forever or does it just work in a sort of transitional, in a sort of transitional moment? I just see a recycling, a repackaging of this over time. Here we see better up now and Seglamin in particular, they've, they're focusing on corporations. They're focusing right. on bringing this stuff into corporations because of the employee disengagement problem. I should say employee disengagement problem. Right. Meaning that most employees just aren't engaged in their work. It's bullshit work. Mm. Right. And of course, the way they frame it is, oh, they're languishing. They're languishing. They're not up to their peak performance potential. So they, they need life coaching to give them the special sauce so they can get back to work and optimize their work performance. And I just see this kind of as a reinvention of going all the way back to Elton Mayo the human relations school back in the late 20s and early 30s where the human relations Elton Mayo was a kind of a fake psychoanalyst he never had a degree in, in psycho psychoanalysis or he was not a psychoanalyst but he said he was he was said he was a lay freudian anyway to make a long story short he basically laid his interpretation on the hawthorne studies at the western electric plant and basically said look if you have friendly supervisors and you have coaches, supervisors act as good counselors and coaches and listen to employees and pay attention to them. They'll be happy and contented and more productive. I don't see much difference between what we're doing here. No. With the influx of positive psychology. So I think, as you were saying, that capitalism has a way of appropriating and coming up with 
new cultural ideas to just right. fit the times. For example, with substance use disorder, we have the attempt to call it a brain disease has been one attempt to reduce stigma of it, but it's an extraordinarily reductive view. Part of the trend of the individualization is to prime the population against a lot of social services. Right. And also unions and other forms of protest. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point that the Human Relations School was extremely anti-union. Right. Yeah. It was a way of circumventing people from talking to each other and co-opting informal right. groups right. and yeah. co-opting them to be aligned with corporate goals. Right. You can even see that it would burgeon in the United States right now because the top four employers are Amazon, Walmart, fast food and call centers which mm-hmm. are grotesquely exploitative and using people as an extension of machines in a totally demeaning way that is utterly impersonal. It's interesting that we kind of cycle like a pendulum. We swing. We go from, oh, we're going to have warm, cozy supervisors to mm-hmm. like a, new, a neo-scientific management in these yeah. algorithmic sweatshops. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a good phrase, algorithmic sweatshops, because that's what they are. Even Apple now is clocking in and monitoring employee attendance because they've now required Apple employees against their wishes. Most Apple employees loved working at home, but they have to be there three days a week. And now when they walk through with their badge, they're closely monitoring that attendance. You spend that kind of money building a new campus. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, it, the, the little spaceship they've got going on. And what's really ironic is Zoom is now demanding most of their workers back too for three days, two or three yeah, days. That's a, I think there is a huge like real estate investment push driving that as well. But yeah. I, I think it, it's more than just real estate. I think it's, I think it reveals just the thirst for power on a case of managers. And they want to strut themselves around the office and have their gaze right on you because they own you. They own you for eight hours. So if we're hiring you as a full-time employee, we own you. You are our property and you're going to be on our property. There are pros and cons to every everything. One aspect of the remote workforce is that it is great, but it's also because you are remote, you don't know who your coworkers are oftentimes. Mm. I do agree with some people that have said that it is much, much more difficult to try to organize a remote workplace versus an in-place workplace. New York City, our terrible strutting turd of a mayor, is requiring city workers to go back to work. And because of it, there's thousands of va- vacancies because people won't do it. Yeah. So, yeah, the vast majority of the surveys out there show that most employees that had a taste of this don't want to go back. One of the major aspects of the remote workplace nowadays, too, is a lot of people often can't afford to live close to where they work. Even myself, when I used to work for my facility, it was a 45-mile trip each way. Unpaid. 
Yeah. yeah. And that's an hour and a half of commute time, at least hour and a half to if I get stuck in traffic, depending three hours of the day that you lose just in commuting. So for a lot of people, it's also the rent crisis that that drives a desire for remote workplace because it's completely understandable that most people want to regain those hours back. I guess maybe as a way of closing it out, I guess, A, do you think maybe perhaps we've there's a glaring admission that we have forgot to mention something that you wanted to talk about? And I guess B is... Do you have any sort of suggestions for alternative approaches? If people are seeking out these life coaches, say for the best reasons, like what would be meaningful or yeah, lasting solutions to personal problems? I think we've touched on it. You know, the whole pressure to be a self-made individual in a society is intensified mm-hmm. at the same time that all of our kind of support mechanisms and the institution of families, our friends and civic and organizations have weakened. And so it makes people vulnerable, right, for connection, as we talked about. And this is where the entrepreneurs come in to to capitalize on that vulnerability. So I, I don't know if I have an answer, but it seems to me that we do have to turn back to connection in whatever form that takes. Uh, to me, it's pretty basic in, in that level. We did an episode a while back about sort of fun, creativity and play and Part of it was based off a couple of different papers. I guess one was like a consumer thing about fun, their concept of fun. And another was someone who was a positive psychologist had written a thing on psych website about the need for fun in our lives. And I didn't disagree with it, but that they were from the sort of positive psychology school definitely gave me pause. (laughs) But it was an interesting discussion we had anyway about it. So reading that, I was like, it was great to actually read. This stuff isn't based on anything really solid. Most of these studies establish correlations, not causation. And and yeah, it was a relief in some ways because there is that sort of tortured thing. And you talk about it, the toxic positivity, the the sort of self-blame that happens for not being optimistic enough or positive enough. One of the biggest things that I think positive psychology does to increase isolation, and I see the effect of it like on the general population all the time in the sense of just one thing that's now extremely common is just like if somebody shares their troubles and you reply back with a similar trouble you had on your own, you're trying to make it about you rather than listen to the person. (laughs) A lot of people complain about how if they have issues and try to talk to their friends about their issues, their friend says, go see a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk to me. Go see a therapist. You're killing my vibe. And the huge aspect of like positive psychology and how it actually like one aspect of an enduring relationship is the ability to manage conflict, not run away from it. And that's a mutual effort thing between the conflicting parties in in many ways. And positive psychology is one that kind of robs people of that ability. Yes, they do. Brilliant point. And that is one aspect of why, aside from just like telling people to ignore their circumstances that are directly affecting them in significant ways, aside from that negative aspect, a huge aspect of positive psychology is how it actually prevents meaningful connection making between people. 
whether therapy or whether life coaching, that creates this vacuum that absolutely needs to be filled. One area where individualization rather than everyone gets the same treatment is really important is like medical and mental health care. But that's one of the things about like capitalism and caretaking is that in capitalism, caretaking becomes this extremely rigid black and white. This is what you get for this rather than the person being seen as an individual that needs individualized care. You get this cookie cutter, right? If you suffer from depression and anxiety, you get CBT. That's it. That's all the insurance will pay out for. Nothing else, right? Whether therapy, whether life coaching, it's disaster capitalism in that these things create these necessary vacuums that need to be filled. And in order to fill them, it gets filled with oftentimes the most egregious kind of profiteering. Because I have friends that use specific life coaches because it's actually more cost effective than the other alternatives. So there are people out there that aren't necessarily charging hundreds of dollars an hour. Yeah. That's true. Ultimately, when you are looking for somebody to help you, one of the key things to look out for is that huge claims need huge burdens of proof. Yeah. Thank you both. And thank you so much for your article. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on this great podcast. I love it. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Red Yen Cola, Joseph Carreri, E, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interview personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.